Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And today we're discussing St. John and the Synoptic Gospels by Percy Gardiner-Smith. And we have a very special guest today because this is our second crossover episode with the NT Pod with Mark Goodacre. Hello, Mark here. Nice to uh, be on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Mark. You're you're working on John's Gospel these days, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in theory, anyway. Although <laughs> the um, <laughs> the recent uh, lockdown has uh, has had something to say about the extent to which I can get to doing any kind of scholarship. So it's nice to have an excuse to talk about something that uh, isn't related to the current lockdown. Hey, Ian, what is this book about? Percy Gardner Smith is arguing that John is independent of the Synoptic Gospels. Prior to writing this book, at least as he represents it, the consensus of scholarship is that John knows all three synoptic gospels, or at the very least, Mark, and is using them in writing his own gospel. Gardner-Smith is going to argue that scholarship has previously paid too much attention to the similarities and should pay more attention to the differences, and also scholarship has ignored oral tradition. But we'll get more into that later. Mark, who was Percy Gardner-Smith? Percival Gardner-Smith was uh, a don in Cambridge. We use the term don in, in I think it's only, only Oxford and Cambridge that talk about, talk about dons. Before that, he was a parish priest. He, he, he was actually born in 1888, so we're going right back. And he lived a really long life, till 1985, so he was 97 when he died. It's such a long time ago that he was an undergraduate at uh, Jesus College, Cambridge, that um, he arrived in a horse-drawn cart, oh <laughs> and he he actually spent he actually spent much of his life, especially the earlier part of his life, as a parish priest, and he became a New Testament scholar primarily when he went up to Cambridge to be dean of Jesus College, Cambridge. And as dean of the college, he he used to teach theology to the undergraduates there. And I think through that teaching, he began to reflect some more about issues especially connected with the New Testament. And that's how he wrote the the book St. John and the Synoptics. That there's a lovely bit of biography about him when when he died in 1985 Jesus College did a did a little obituary of him and there's there's a there's a really sad line he he was he was a parish priest at a place called Comberton in Cambridgeshire and his wife so loved the parish at Comberton that when it was announced that he was going to leave Combaton Parish, and he he actually wrote a, a, a he actually wrote a history of Combaton Parish Church himself in 1929 but when he left Combaton Parish Church it was said that the rectory was damp with Mrs Gardner Smith's tears isn't that that terribly sad but apparently she adjusted to life in Cambridge and uh, and they spent the rest of their life there and he, he, he was basically an academic for much of that time. For all the trivia you know about this guy you must really love this book Mark. (laughs) I just like to make sure that I've got an idea of of the personality behind the book. And and a little later on, I'll maybe touch on something else that's relevant to the reception of the book. Mm-hmm. Sure. Spoiler warning. We're going to do our best to represent the argument of this book before we get into critiques. But none of us are particularly fond of this volume. Or terribly persuaded by it. 
Percy Gardner Smith is responding to 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 something like theological and scholarly consensus. You might even say that John did in fact know the synoptics. And the idea that John knew the synoptics is a very old one. And in fact, it starts with Clement of Alexandria, who, when he did, gives his description of the four canonical gospels and how their authors came to decide to write them, he says that John decided to write a spiritual gospel, having read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he wrote this spiritual gospel to bring out things that he thought were under-discussed in the other gospels. Uh, and this becomes sort of normative for, um, for a lot of Christian history. But of course, this involves a lot of pre-critical assumptions about who the gospel authors are and how they're related to each other. This starts to change once we get into the 19th century and people start to question traditional authorship attestations of the gospels and how the gospels are related to each other. And one person who is a great example of this is B.H. Streeter, who's a lot more skeptical that John is in fact writing a spiritual gospel based on all three synoptics. And he thinks there's only really good evidence that John is using Mark and Luke. He's not quite so sure about Matthew. The mention of B.H. Streeter, he, he, um, he's the only New Testament scholar that I know of who died in a plane crash. He, he was actually an amateur, he was an amateur pilot, and uh, I think it's 1936, he actually died in a, in a plane crash. Huh. Which is funny, it's just like the year before Gardner Smith's book comes out. Wow. Right, so as Laura said, that John used the synoptics was the consensus position from as early as evidence goes, right up until Percy Gardner-Smith is writing his book. Um, and a particularly amusing uh, case study of that is the Acts of Timothy, wherein John is actually the person responsible for assembling the Synoptic Gospels. He goes out and collects the traditions himself, and then writes his fourth gospel as sort of a capstone in theological interpretation. A lovely tradition that in the Acts of Timothy. Uh, I, I mean, if I just, just to sort of follow up on what Laura is saying as well, the... It, 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 it's really important to get that context for looking at Gardner Smith's book. I mean, he, he, it's, it's a really radical change from what had been the absolute consensus, not just for a century or so. We're not looking at like a, a you know, a kind of consensus that came about post-Enlightenment. We're looking at a consensus that was across two millennia nearly. And Percy Gardner Smith is largely responsible for shifting that consensus through Dodd. But so... Percy Gardner-Smith is going to argue that scholars have paid too much attention to overlaps and uh, what he sees as incidental agreements, and not enough attention to the ways in which John's gospel is different from the others. He argues that scholars should pay attention to the whole gospel and balance these things against each other. One of the things that I think is important for the context here is that this is the late 1930s and the new kid on the block is basically form criticism which obsesses about oral tradition and you've already got really huge works of form criticism coming out of Germany and so Gardner Smith by applying oral tradition theory as it as it existed in the 1930s was doing something really cutting edge it's easy to look at Gardner Smith's book now and think it's terribly old-fashioned but this was really cutting edge stuff in the 1930s right so if you look at a particular passage and we're going to talk about this maybe a little more in depth later but like John the Baptist or the temple tradition there are of course places where John uses the same terminology or in a couple places you know strings of verbs shorter strings of verbatim agreement 
And Gardner Smith is going to say, well, this is the sort of language that would have been circulating in the oral tradition. And this is the sort of language you would have to use to tell this story. And he's instead going to draw our attention to the places where these stories are different. For instance, different animals are mentioned at the temple. And Gardner Smith is going to argue throughout that we can't imagine the Gospel of John introducing oxen and sheep if he had Mark's gospel description of birds already. Well, I, th- I think what one of the things that Gardner Smith is trying to do, he's he's trying to show that the kind of agreement that you have intrasynoptically, so the kind of agreement you get between Matthew and Mark and Luke and Mark, and Gardner Smith believed very strongly, like everyone in his day, in Mark and priority, that kind of agreement, he was trying to say, is is absent from John. You don't get this sustained verbatim agreement that goes on for 20 or 30 strings of words at a time. And to that extent, what, one of the things he was just trying to do is point out the obvious, that here we have something that is fundamentally different from the synoptics and to that extent i think it's a really important contribution because what he's trying to do is he's trying to push something that we all push pedagogically whenever we're teaching john's gospel we probably spend at least an hour underlining to our undergraduate students look the gospel of john is really really different from the synoptics and gardner smith's book is, is 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 basically that writ large and he's basically saying it is so different that it cannot even have known the synoptic gospels and and that really is a one-line summary to me is is what gardner smith is doing one thing that's doing a lot of work for gardner smith in his argument is the way he is thinking about oral tradition because it's really hard to deny that there are in fact major commonalities between john and the synoptic gospels right we have a lot of the same kinds of miracles we have even some of the same sorts of sayings the same sorts of uh, metaphors and images happening but we don't have the same kind of really close tight agreement that we have with between the synoptic gospels so how does gardner smith deal with this As Mark said, what's going on in the scholarly world at this time is the rise of form criticism. And form criticism is really invested in this idea of the oral traditions that emerged about Jesus and get passed down. So when you have have touchstones and commonalities between texts, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a literary relationship. What the form critics are really drawing attention to is that a lot of these things are being told orally and in in, in sermons or in uh, evangelistic contexts before they ever get written down. So this is the idea that Gardner Smith is really tapping into. A lot of the stuff is coming from the oral tradition. That said, it's a little tricky, I think, to figure out exactly what Gardner Smith means by oral tradition. And this happens a lot, I think, when we're talking about uh, about the way scholars invoke oral tradition. Because, you know, oral tradition is really just, it's just a fancy word for people talking to each other, right? It's just a fancy way of saying <laughs> people saying things about Jesus. But Gardner thinks it's actually a lot more than that, right? Gardner Smith argues that it's the, the oral tradition doesn't just contain entire narratives. It can contain the, the ways in which narratives are set up in sequence to each other. So the example he uses of this is the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. These happen one right after the other in Mark, and they happen one right after the other in John. How does Gardner Smith explain this? Well, it's because those stories were already told one right after the another in the oral tradition. Right. Debalius would do a lot of work sort of theorizing what the different kinds of occasions in which people were telling stories about Jesus and map different gospel stories onto different occasions. A lot of that was purely speculative, but Percy Gardner-Smith doesn't really give us that. 
he more or less invokes oral tradition as if it's, you know, just a thing out there that contains lexical information, but also allows for the kinds of disagreements you see between John and the synoptics. And I think, to be fair to Gardner Smith, one of the things that, again, going back to the 1930s, there's a lot of reaction against the kind of source-critical school that we're talking as if the only way to analyze ancient texts is as using other ancient texts. If, if you look at Streeter's Four Gospels, for example, practically every piece of material in the synoptics for Streeter comes from some written source or other. So if you look at Matthew's gospel, gospel Matthew is just full of bits of Mark, bits right. of Q, and bits of M spliced together by Matthew. And Gardner Smith is 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 part of a reaction against this overemphasis on literary dependence, invoking oral tradition and saying, hey, these people used to talk to one another. Surely in their preaching, they did tell stories. They did repeat sayings of Jesus. So he's really trying to say that you can make great sense of the way that John parallels the synoptics where he does by just assuming that you're seeing different versions of oral preaching. It's a really important contribution methodologically just to remind people of the importance of ancient people talking to one another. So that's really what I think he's reacting against. Sure, that's helpful. Gardner uses John's difference from the synoptics in <laughs> in an interesting uh, two-sided way. That is, uh, for Gardner Smith, insignificant differences from the synoptics suggest independence because it's hard to imagine uh for gardner smith why someone would change a detail about you know peter's hometown um switching from bethsaida to capernaum why why the evangelist would decide consciously to rewrite that but at the same time percy gardner smith says significant differences theologically significant differences have to reflect independence because according to gardner smith if John had access to Mark, he would not have felt at liberty to contradict or disagree. And he doesn't make this argument for obvious reasons, I think. Percy Gardner-Smith doesn't put this argument right next to each other, but he switches back and forth as it's convenient for him. And this presents sort of an in interesting situation where it's not entirely clear what could suggest dependence on the synoptics. Yeah, no, I, th I, think, that's, I think that's right, Ian. The, the, one of the things that if we are moving towards uh, towards criticizing Gardner Smith a bit, he one of the things that happens is something that I see a lot in people that argue for John's independence from the synoptics, which is similarities are never allowed to be diagnostic of John using the synoptics, but differences are always allowed to be diagnostic of John not right. using the synoptics. So you get I mean, you, you just, yeah, you get this this argument all the time. Look how different John is from the synoptics, therefore he didn't use them. And if you say to them, yes, but look how similar this bit is, it's, well, yeah, that's oral tradition. So you, you actually have a kind of an interesting, differences are explained differently from the similarities, if that makes, if that makes sense. Well, and that raises another point. We can come back to the differences, but uh, the plagiarist's charter should be invoked here, shouldn't it? <laughs> well, what, what, what is, what's the you plagiarist's charter? <laughs> what's that doing? <laughs> There's some British scholar I read once who'd coined this term. <laughs> when I wrote my book on the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas and the Gospels, I became frustrated in noticing just how often people would say things like, 
look how different the Gospel of Thomas is from the Synoptics. So, so with the Gospel of Thomas, about 50% of the Gospel of Thomas is paralleled in the Synoptics. And so you might well say, well, well look, look, look how similar the Gospel of Thomas is to the Synoptics. But what the independence people say, people who think that Thomas is independent of the Synoptics, they would say, ah, oh, yes, but look at all the differences. And the thing is, that is never a justification when you're looking at plagiarism, for example. So if you have a student that has copied from a, an internet source or whatever for 20% of their essay, it's not a good excuse for that person to say, yes, but look at the 80% that isn't copied. It just doesn't, it just, you know, and I, I coined this phrase plagiarist charter because I'm trying to say it just allows plagiarists to get away with plagiarism if it's if, if plagiarism is okay because you're not copying for lots of it. And so that's what I was re really trying to say with the Gospel of Thomas, that just because lots of it's different, doesn't mean that the similarities aren't important. And I think the same could be true of John. I assume that's where you're going with that, Ian. Is that right? Yep. This came up when our uh, our current first lady gave her inauguration speech in which she plagiarized the previous first lady. And the response of the official spokesperson was, look how much of it wasn't verbatim overlap of the previous speech. And that's right. not a persuasive argument. <laughs> We've been giving you kind of a bird's eye view of this book and just some just a general overview of the argument for John's independence of the synoptics. But let's just take a second to drill in a little bit and isolate a specific pericope and talk about how this how these arguments manifest themselves in a specific example. So we're going to talk about the John the Baptist pericope. Yeah, I mean, the John the Baptist material is one of the most interesting similarities between the synoptics and John because Mark's gospel basically opens up with John the Baptist first of all introducing his baptism and then going on to him prophesying Jesus and Jesus getting baptized and so on and you have the same material in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 with some additional material and then here we get to John's gospel and just like Mark we open up with John the Baptist I mean in John it's even it's extended even further because you have this great prologue in John's gospel but even the prologue has John the Baptist as a major element within it but anyway you, you have this really similar John the Baptist material and and one of the things that distinguishes John's gospel from the synoptics is this insistence that John is not Elijah. And, and it's striking. I mean, people actually say directly to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says no. And that's really striking because Matthew and Mark in particular seem to be saying that John the Baptist is basically a kind of Elijah returned. And, and here we have explicitly John the Baptist saying he's not Elijah. And, and for Gardner Smith, this is as clear an example as you can get that John is not dependent on the synoptics because he says, well, look, he is Elijah in, in Matthew and Mark. And, and now he and now now John the Baptist is insisting that he's not Elijah. This must mean that John doesn't know the synoptics. Why would the author of John's gospel go to such trouble to contradict the clear point that you have in the synoptics? So that's an example of how Gardner Smith thinks through this material. This is what we mean, I think, by, by saying that differences are diagnostic of John not knowing the synoptics. Right. And this would be a significant difference. Uh, Gardner Smith actually treats the notion that John would purposefully contradict the synoptics as a reductio ad absurdum. He, at one point, um, just concludes an argument with, 
if John knew the synoptics, he must not have held them in high regard. <laughs> and in another place, he says he would, he would have shown contempt for them. And this, we are supposed to just, you know, nod and agree, means, yes, of course, obviously, that isn't the case. Right. And I think we can go back talking more about John the Baptist, but I think that's really dubious, given all we know about other gospel literature, um, and indeed the sorts of changes we see Matthew and Luke making to Mark mm-hmm. on uh, issues like law observance, or um, perhaps a less controversial example would be the Proto-Evangelium of James, which very clearly, as a certain Mark S. Goodacre has shown, uh, is using the synoptics. Uh, there's like a 23 verbatim word agreement, but at the same time contradicts them on really explicit details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time when one source uses another uses another source. And, and even on the very example that Gardner Smith is talking about, Luke doesn't follow the idea in Mark and Matthew that John the Baptist is, is Elijah. I mean, he has in, in Luke one seventeen you've got John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah, which I always think is like Luke's nodding to that tradition. But then when it comes to it, he omits a lot of the material that that. That, that makes John like Elijah. All John's done is taken it one step further and have John the Baptist himself denying it. Right. And if, and if I could just throw in just, just a quick thing there that makes, that makes the discussion of John the Baptist really, really interesting for the argument that John knows the synoptics. You actually have in John the Baptist's mouth in John, you have in his mouth that he is the one preparing the way of the Lord and, and making straight his paths, which, which is in the narrator's voice in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And that's something you often see in John's gospel, something which is a kind of synoptic narration, which is taken over by the character in, in John's gospel. And that's another great example of the transforming nebulous role of oral tradition, where in this case, oral tradition can attach a story to a scriptural fulfillment in Christian interpretation already. Um, So for Gardner Smith, the Isianic passage here has attached itself to John the Baptist in Christian interpretation in a way that it can reach John and the synoptics independently. Yeah, And and there's just so many other little commonalities that just don't make sense as just like natural associations with John the Baptist, you know, like talking about Jesus and whether or not you can pick up his shoes, you know, that just seems so particular. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's very, yeah, yeah. It's you have to make oral tradition do a lot of work for you for everything to go back to that. And I just don't think, and I think most scholars today actually are kind of agreed about this, is that there's just not great evidence that that's how oral tradition really works in oral societies. Is it partly a question of of the assumption that somehow the way that the synoptic gospels tell the story is the only way to tell it, that, that it's a kind of a normative way. Because when I open John's gospel and it starts the same way as Mark's gospel, exactly the same with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. I mean, baptism of Jesus isn't explicitly mentioned, but the dove still descends on Jesus. You right. have calling of disciples. And, and I mean, is there is there a kind of assumption that and and you know and th- this can extend out to other people that argue for independence that Mark's way of telling the Jesus story is the only way of telling it that it's the normative way of telling it and 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 in that I just wonder if there's a there's a kind of canonical bias or even a, a synoptic bias where we assume that is the only way you could tell the story but I bet in the first century there were a bunch of other ways of telling this story for sure one of the things that one of the legacies of of Gardner Smith in this is that he is thinking when he looks at parallels between the between John and the synoptics he's always looking on the level of tradition or individual segments of the gospel and that i think itself 
is trying is assuming that there's a kind of normative way of doing the gospel rather than thinking that John might have actually been inspired by the very way that Mark and after Matthew and Luke set up the whole story there's there's a there's a fund I think there's a fundamental conceptual similarity between John and Mark and there's a fundamental similar literary structure between John and Mark I mean that takes us into some slightly different territory but I just want to draw attention to the fact that that Gardner Smith actually begins this that this idea which really takes hold that the way of looking at John's parallels to the synoptics is to look at parallel traditions and I think that's not the obviously you've got to look at those you've got to look at the par- parallel passages but you need to look at a lot more you need to you need to sort of look at the whole way that the Jesus story is conceptualized I think one really great example of the way in which small differences or not even small but just differences weigh a lot more than conceptual or storytelling similarities is Gardner Smith makes a really shocking move with the story of the healing of the centurion's slave in in Matthew and Luke. In John, there's a very similar version of this story where a centurion, um, it's the centurion's boy, that could be son or slave, you can translate it both ways. There's a very similar story to the Matthew and Luke story in John, where a centurion comes to Jesus and asks for some kind of healing, and then the Jesus sends him on his way and the healing takes place at a distance. Uh, the emphasis of the story is quite different in Matthew and Luke than it is in John, but you have sort of the same basic story elements. Gardner Smith... I don't think it'll surprise you to say that he thinks this is sort of a this is a different story in John than it is from Matthew and Luke. It doesn't reflect borrowing from them. But he even takes this one further and says that he doesn't even think Matthew and Luke have the same source because there are differences in their versions of the story. In Matthew, the centurion himself comes to Jesus, and in Luke, this is all mediated through the centurion's other slaves, and we never actually see the centurion. And in Matthew, the payoff of the whole story is this uh, faithfulness of the Gentiles as very deliberately contrasted with the faithlessness of uh, of Jesus's countrymen. So even though it's so similar, these differences are enough that Gardner's Gardner's still over here saying, you know, I don't know if these are from the same source. So I, I think that shows a lot about uh, about how he's weighing the evidence here. That's actually, yeah, I mean, and that has its own legacy today in, in, in say, for example, the work of uh, Jimmy Dunn, who argues that the centurion servant in Matthew and Luke could be different versions of an oral, of an oral source, which, which I, I find quite, breathtaking in in the sense that you, you you've got enormous strings of verbatim agreement not even in jesus's words in the centurion's words you know they you have it going on for i forget the exact because but it's over 20 words all 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 at once and, and and what's more you have the same literary order in in matthew and luke uh i, I mean I, said, I i've written about this before but i mean yeah i i, I mean it's to to me if you haven't got a literary source Matthew and Luke, either whether it's Q or whether Luke's using Matthew, if you haven't got got a source there, then 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 the game's up. You know, we can never say that any source in antiquity in antiquity is is using any source if that kind of close right. agreement is is not diagnostic of a source. So one of the really obvious differences between John and the Synoptics is where they place temple relative to one another. In the synoptics, Jesus's temple tantrum is at the very end of the ministry, just before Jesus's crucifixion and death. Whereas in the gospel of John, it happens in chapter two, right at the beginning of the ministry. 
And this, again, for Percy Gardner-Smith, is evidence of independence. The temple incident, he argues, must have been received by John as just something Jesus did without any knowledge of where it happened in the life of Jesus. And this is a really interesting case study because the notion that an author could not change the order of pericopes is just so obviously falsified by looking at the way Luke and Matthew treat Mark. One really (laughs) easy example is the rejection at Nazareth, which Luke moves from uh, after Capernaum into the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke 4. But you can, throughout the whole, I mean, pull up any uh, outline of the Gospels and you see that evangelists have no issue reordering the sequence of events. But for Gardner-Smith, when it comes to John, this counts as evidence of independence. Right. And and in fact, one of the things that seems to me John is doing in by bringing forward the cleansing of the temple to chapter 2 is, is he's doing something very similar to what Mark is doing which is introducing conflict with the authorities right from the beginning and and you you, you can see that that, that that I mean and you, you can put to one side arguments about when this actually happened historically, whether it happened historically. The point is that the literary function of having the temple incident where you have it in John is to foreshadow what's going to come throughout the gospel, just as Mark does, that conflict with the authorities is going to lead to trouble. And you can see John contextualizing that whole thing in in chapter 2 by going on in chapter 3 with the Nicodemus story, which also has echoes from the pre-passion narrative bit in the Gospels as well, where, they, where this stuff happens. So really what John is doing, I think, is something very similar to what the synoptics are doing. And also, in terms of literary structure, he has to do something like that because of the way that he's structured things later in the Gospel when you get to the Lazarus story. You know, you, that, that, that really he wants the Lazarus story in John 11 and John 12 to be leading into the passion. And, and in that kind of scenario, it would be very difficult to imagine where you would put the temple incident. Right. And I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that Tatian, in composing his Gospel Diatessaron, puts the temple incident in neither the synoptic nor the Johannine location, but places it right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. So here we have another evangelist who has no issue relocating the temple. Great. I love the way that um, you've got some Tatian, relevant Tatian, <laughs> always, always some it's relevant Tatian to your bring back to the table. Ian. It's excellent, excellent. <laughs> Almost as if it were my dissertation topic. One thing that I think is really important to note is that when you look at the Gospel of John, I think one of the most noticeable traits about the gospel is that all the characters really talk in the same way, right? Uh, So the narrator, Jesus, and then even John the Baptist all have this very similar tone and they use a lot of the same language. Um, And this is to the point that it's actually very Mm -hmm. difficult sometimes to figure out when Jesus has stopped talking and when the narrator has taken over. The classic example of this is in John 3, towards the end of uh, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Once you get these famous sayings, such as, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it's not really clear whether or not Jesus has sort of trailed off and the narrator is summing up what's happened, or if Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus. It's just not clear at all. If John just really was just preserving his oral sources so well, it's very strange that all these different people, including the narrator, have the exact same way of talking. It seems like this probably owes something to the authorial hand of John himself. Right. And that was and that point was already 
out there. I mean, both uh, FC Bauer makes that point, and 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 Strauss, the great Strauss, makes makes this point. So I mean, these are you know th- th- these are really some of the authorities, you know, some of the great authorities on the New Testament that that Gardner Smith would have known, and uh, and he he just doesn't. I agree, Laura. He doesn't pay adequate attention to that to that point about about authorial voice. I, I one of my problems as well with with, with this, and, and and it is something which I think later advocates of John's independence share, and that's that it, it's it's to do with the nature of the appeal to oral tradition, because unless you think that nobody in antiquity talked to one another, <laughs> you know, that, that, then then obviously there's oral tradition. I mean, obviously people are talking to one another. And and I think the problem with the appeal to oral tradition is not what it affirms, which is that people used to talk to one another, but what it denies, which is that they used literary sources. And we know that literary sources were enormously influential. So that's one of my issues with, with the whole appeal to oral tradition, that, that it, it it's, it's basically becomes like this, this uber explanation for everything and i think also the thing about oral tradition is infinitely malleable i mean, I mean it's so fluid i i am always struck by how the metaphors that people use for oral tradition are rivers streams the lake the reservoir the well i mean all of this and and the thing is it's it's literally fluid and this still happens in contemporary new testament scholarship even where you have people who are more sophisticated in their in their studies on oral tradition and i think it suggests that people don't really have a clear imagination of what they're, what they're talking about they 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 are so vague in their appeals to it that it can literally do any work that you want it to do Absolutely. And even advocates of the importance of oral tradition, like Jimmy, James Dunn, have argued positively that there are no diagnostic features for oral tradition. There is no way we can methodologically control what it can and cannot do. So we just have to assume it's present everywhere. We can't prove it's not present. But then when you start using that in the way Percy Gardner-Smith does, where you're supposed to ignore similarities and pay attention to differences, you end up with just everything being oral. And this is how you get something like extensive verbatim agreements between Matthew and Luke in the centurion's slave being derived from independent oral sources. Right, right. So to make another Mark Eskadaker point here, I think Percy Gardner-Smith, in comparing John to the synoptics, is beguiled by the way the synoptics agree with each other in a way that other books in antiquity don't. Uh, E.P. Sanders refers to this as sort of the conservation of matter and energy, this notion that an evangelist must preserve everything they have in a written source. But this isn't the way authors act with regard to sources pretty much everywhere else in all of ancient literature. It is totally normal to contradict your sources. It's totally normal to uh, leave out tons of stuff and compose a bunch of stuff afresh. The kind of argument that Gardner Smith makes here is premised on the fact that we can't imagine an evangelist doing that. And I think that is really, I mean, it is a sort of special canonical pleading because it ignores the way the Gospel of Thomas or the Proto-Evangelium of James treats the synoptics, as well as ignores wider literary Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures. Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews has no problem revising Jewish scripture, and presumably in that case, he viewed his source 
with even greater veneration than John probably viewed the Gospel of Mark. No, I think that's exactly right. I, I like this under this Goodacre chat that you talk about. Yeah, you should read him. He's <laughs> very helpful. So what we haven't done here today is tried to make a positive argument for John's dependence on the synoptics. We're going to have to save that for later episodes and forthcoming monographs. Um, what we've tried to do today is sort of summarize how Percy Gardner-Smith makes his argument um, and the problems we see with that. And the reason we think that's worth doing is because Percy Gardner-Smith has been really important for this issue in New Testament scholarship. Right. I mean, I mean the uh, it's actually fascinating when you go back and look at the way that this topic was discussed in the mid-20th century. Gardner-Smith's book really does begin a turning of the tide. But I do wonder whether the really important person in this is is not Gardner-Smith so much as C.H. Dodd. And there's a direct link between them. Now, C.H. Dodd is a contemporary of Gardner-Smith, also spent time at Jesus College, Cambridge. They were close personal friends. Dodd is actually the older man. He was born in 1884, so he's four years the senior of Gardner-Smith. But Dodd was influenced by Gardner-Smith's book. It made Dodd think, oh my goodness, could it be the case that John is indeed independent of the synoptics? And he wrote a book on the interpretation of John in 1953, and then another called Historical Tradition in the Fourth Gospel in 1963. And those two books are the ones that really pick up Gardner-Smith's thesis and runs with it. And if you actually look at the case for John's independence from the synoptics, people always mention Gardner-Smith. But when it comes down to the actual exegetical detail, they go to Dodd. Dodd is the one that they constantly go to. And that's frankly because Dodd was a far better scholar than Gardner-Smith. He was, he, he is, uh, even though I disagree with Dodd, he's constantly noticing things in the text that, uh, and explaining them in interesting, enlightening and exciting ways. He's far less annoying than Gardner-Smith is, again, to be frank. So even though I think Gardner-Smith's book is the turning point, it's actually Dodd who did the really heavy lifting and who, and without Dodd, I don't think this would have taken off in the way that it did in the latter part of the 20th century. The legacy of this book is that it paves the way for John's independence of the synoptics to become, um, if, if not scholarly consensus among people who really work on the synoptic problem, but just among, you know, it just, it becomes the normative position in that I, I think it's really does happen because of this book that for the most part, scholars don't assume that John might have known the synoptics. In fact, they kind of assume the opposite. So uh, when you when you take most intro textbooks, John's independence of the of the synoptic gospels is routinely affirmed, and this is how these consensuses just get created and passed down from one generation to the next. I just want to push back a little bit against the idea that this ever became consensus that John knows the synoptics. I know everybody says it, and all the textbooks say it, but but actually. Even during the period of so-called consensus where John is independent of the synoptics, you have books like C.K. Barrett's 
commentary on John coming out, arguing that John knows the synoptics. And, I, you know, I mean, what is a consensus? I mean, even if you're counting heads, I want, I want in any consensus C.K. Barrett to be in there. I mean, he's one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century. And also during this period, you constantly have people saying, hold on a minute, I think that John knows the synoptics. I think the reason why people think that it becomes a consensus is simply that the biggest works of Johannine scholarship in the late 20th century, with the exception of Barrett, are arguing that uh, that John doesn't know the synoptics. But, well, they're not arguing it, they're presupposing it. So Raymond Brown, just, just he, he like has a page on it, uh, not a very good page either, and then he just assumes that John doesn't know the synoptics. You, you have the same with um, J. Louis Martin, you know, this same thing just assumes that John doesn't know the synoptics. So I think what happens is the, these great, these sort of one, and these are great scholars. And, and my own tutor, John Ashton, who wrote Understanding the Fourth Gospel, would only ever say that John used synoptic-like traditions. So I think the thing is, it's the great works of Johannine scholarship are working on the assumption that John doesn't know the synoptics, but the case itself isn't actually getting argued much after C.H. Dodd. So so I, I, I do want to push back a little bit against the idea it became consensus, but it does certainly become a very, very strong view. And I think it, it, it takes hold in a context where people, where scholars really love the idea of independent works that can, that, that then, that then can add to that sort of wonderful dynamism and diversity uh, that, that you have. <laughs> and it can also do some work on the historical Jesus as well, because if John's independent from the synoptics, then you can talk about John as an independent witness to historical Jesus traditions. But anyway, that's just a sort of a little follow up on, on what, what I think happened in, in the, you know, in the later years. And also, I would say, I do think that recently the tide is really turning back again. Uh, I, I would say now that, that we, we are nowhere near a consensus on independence. Independence, and in fact, if anything, I would say I would say quite quite the opposite. I think things are now beginning to move decisively back towards the idea that John knows the synoptics. So the era of Gardner Smith is over. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> All right, thank you so much for joining us, Mark. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. All right. <laughs>